Hello and welcome to the Crate and Crow Bob podcast. It is episode 414. Uh, my name is Tom Senior and I'm joined today by Jamie Britton. Hello, Jamie. Hello, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not so bad, thank you. Not so bad at all. Awesome. So we've managed to gather for yet another week uh, to talk about games, just all games and all the good things that come with games. Uh, so what have you been playing at the moment, Jamie? So um, I have been playing, just now, the video game Tekken 7 with yeah. you. Over it the internet. Hilarious and good fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I've tuned out of... I've been trying to get back into fighting games recently um, just because I always enjoyed them as a kid and what I always really enjoyed was playing Tekken with my mates. But for yeah. some reason, I think because I want to think of myself as being more hardcore than that, I've tried uh, various Street Fighter um, type games um, and had some fun with them, particularly... Um, uh, Street Fighter 3 triple something or other, the name escapes me right now, which is hmm. the one everyone says is the best, which just looked like to play that on the uh, the like anniversary collection you can get is such a beautiful game. It's really quite striking um, how lovingly the animation is is done in that game um, and how it's, it's all packaged and put together. It just feels really unique and wonderful. It's also... In- impossible to play for me like i just can't <laughs> i can't do it it's 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 the game that they're playing you know in that famous clip at the evo tournament oh where, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can parry strikes in it um and that's kind of key to success um but beyond kind of adoring how it looks and and feels like that's never going to be the game for me and then like playing street fighter four and five recently a little bit too trying to get into them but like they're so unwieldy and big, those games, and quite janky too. And the online systems for kind of getting you up and running are really, you know, they just feel impenetrable in, in weird ways. So I just thought, oh, fuck it, I'll get Tekken 7, which is always on sale, like a definitive edition. Hmm. It's so hard to resist because it says like, you know, £14 down from 97 or whatever. <laughs> So it's it's hard to resist. I've just been playing with that the last couple of days, and then I thought before we chat today, just as we did with the uh, um, that weird uh, uh, Universal Studios movie game that we played. Yeah, I forgot the name of. I've um, also forgot the name, which is a good sign for that game. <laughs> the weird IP <laughs> game, which seems to have disappeared without a trace, and no one's mentioned again. Something worse. Yes, remember. that's right. Um, uh, yes, so I just thought I'd play Tekken. Uh, and delighted to see that Tekken is exactly the same as it was when I was playing it around my mate Dave's house. It really is. Uh, in 1997. Just four buttons, really, plus a couple of extras that give you some sort of flair. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see the stuff that they've added, uh, and which is to say not really that much at all. You now have a sort of special move that um, pops up uh, when you're very close to low health. Um, and if you can fire that off, if you can make the first punch connect and the other player's not blocking, you could basically do a sort of super mega attack, which um, sort of evens the battle out a little bit. And I do think that's really good because you can only do it once uh, and the attacks are quite easy to block. Um, and so, yeah, that gives you a whole kind of, uh, you know, sort of panic button to press when you're uh, very low on health. But obviously if you if you try and fire it off and you miss or the other player blocks... Uh, then you're dead, basically. So it's a really good little risk reward thing um, that also allows you to see like some like ridiculously flashy animations. Um, 
so there's that. And then there's also, you can sort of press L1 and that will give you like the ability to do sort of, uh, you know, what would ordinarily be like simple combos, um, these kind of flashy attacks, which are sort of slower to wind up, but hit harder. And that's really good uh, and really fun. But beyond that, like it is exactly the same as it always was. It's four buttons, um, a whole roster of characters, and you just kind of have at each other. And I kind of poked around today, like, how does someone get good at Tekken? And seeing that there is, like, immense depth in there um, and immense, like, you know, levels of prowess that people are capable of achieving, but it's also supported that you can just do what we just did, which is just, you know, spend 25 minutes knocking seven bells out of each other and get a couple of wins and a couple of losses each and have a good laugh doing it as well. So perfectly pitched. That um, that sentiment you expressed of, fuck it, let's play Tekken, is... Just the exact kind of niche it's found for casual players like me. And I think, like, if you just want to knock about with your friends, if they're popping over, I used to, when I was a kid, just go out and play football all day and then whip with my friends and then come back and we would play Tekken 2 and then Tekken 3. Uh, and it's, as you say, it's just really dependable. And I think also, uh, one of its strengths as a kind of casual pickup game is that it doesn't have a lot of the complex input demands that stuff like Street Fighter and Guilty Gear do. And as much as they've tried to sort of uh, make, uh, particularly Street Fighter Five, I think was a real attempt to try and get new players to pick it up. Uh, you still have uh, the, the quarter turn forwards plus action button is such a kind of a staple of the fighting genre. But actually, if you're new to a game, it's actually quite a difficult thing to do right off the bat and you know you can whiff moves um very easily or just like you you might want to do uh, a big uppercut with the uh, ryu and it if you don't quite get the precise button input correct it just turns into a normal punch and then you get punished for it um that's where the depth of those games come from that's why you, you, evo games the, the big tournaments tend to be street fighters because they are so so precise but if you just want to have a knock around you can pick up Tekken and it doesn't have like half circle moves, quarter circle moves with the D-pad. It is you, often the most complicated thing you're doing is pressing two buttons at the same time. And those super moves that you mentioned, you just press R1 to execute them as soon as your character is glowing. Uh, and the equivalent in Guilty Gear would be a half turn backwards then toward plus action button to do it. <laughs> yeah. And the, 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 the degree of dexterity required there, uh, it would be second nature to fighting game aficionados that it would seem like really easy to do quite used to doing it in guilty gear but it's nice not to have to worry about that and if you press like forward and two top buttons with any character in tekken they'll sort of roughly do the same sort of thing like there will be a big lunging punch attack uh pressing back and a certain kick button tends to be a kind of standoffish long range attack that kind of keeps someone at range and for most characters that's true so you could sort of we were just sort of cycling through i would happily pick random in that game and have a go with any character because it feels as though you'll be able to get somewhere over a course of a few rounds um whereas i don't think you could say that about many fighters actually um no you're and- absolutely right you can sort of follow the momentum of the fighters on stay on screen and you can often sort of intuit as to where you should like drive them next mm. and that will often end with a combo you know it's very it's very astute of you because to notice that because actually it's true I, I sort of never really noticed i was doing it that like you know your fight will do a big swing up with their arms and you think oh well what if i press both kick buttons and down to kind of follow through on that and more often than not they will then follow through on that with a with a combo that kind of you know does something interesting and um, pushes the fight forward 
Yeah, and the classic thing is uh, being knocked down is obviously a big deal in loads of fighting games, but particularly Tekken. Um, and so you, when you knock someone down, you press down and kick, and almost all characters have the same sort of basic low kick that will just punish them a little bit before they get up. Um, but then uh, when you watch people who are really good at Tekken, it's a game massively, it seems to be about juggling and these like really innovative juggle combos that keep the characters in the air and delete about 60 to 70% of their health bar. Um, and then they'll come back with their own uh, combo opportunities. And, you know, a lot of it is about pokes and seeing, you know, detecting the very moment that your opponent isn't blocking uh, high or low and then punishing them with a massive combo. So there is that kind of level of depth. Yes, um, and I did I did play a couple of ranked, no, sorry, unranked games earlier just to see what would happen. Um, and I was immediately, you know, absolutely murdered by several players in a row, all of whom were doing that, basically. Um, all of whom were doing the thing where they, they basically wait for you to um, close the distance and miss and then, yeah, stun lock you into a kind of endless combo of kicks. Mm. And you, you think it's about to end and then they manage to get two more hits <laughs> yeah. in, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it takes a, like, they take a lot of skills to memorize that stuff and understand uh, to spot those windows, those open moments where you can exploit them. And I, I've never been very good at that, to be honest, in fighting games, even though I've always really enjoyed fighting games, uh, but only ever at this sort of like casual pickup level. Um, but I have to think that probably, I wonder, like, surely most people who pick up these games just want a fun bash around and don't necessarily want to en- enter the upper echelons of ranked tournaments and ranked yeah, play. Yeah, and, and playing on ranked mode uh, as well, I had good fights. You know, it was, I didn't feel mm. like I was completely out of my depth. It was, it, you know, I won a couple, um, you know, and that's that's good enough for me. You know, what's miserable is when you just, you know, play these things and you just get wiped the floor with again yeah. and again and again. But, like, it did actually feel like I was being ranked with people who were, you know, just like me, basically, which is, you know, sort of what you want. Um, and the online does just work. Um, I remember first Street Fighter five years ago, I think Capcom announced this huge wide ranging kind of online network. Um, I would never have tried to interact with it or access fights. Like you can get into fights and I think like, the latency seems pretty good as far as I could tell, but the so many sort of menus and subcategories of types of <laughs> fight that you can enter into, whether it be ranked or unranked or that, you know, different varieties of stuff. It is quite daunting actually. Um, and also, you know, that complexity is uh, rewarding for people who are able to kind of become experts at the game. And it seems as though the skill ceiling is much higher for some fighters like Street Fighter than others. Uh, but I, just, I think it's uh, nice to celebrate the the games that are kind of, I don't know, mid-core. <laughs> <laughs> They're just kind of like, offer a bit challenge, but not aren't like entirely alienating. Uh, I really like action games in particular that, that are in that mold. And Tekken's um, always had a kind of, <clears throat> I mean... Most fighting games have a kind of, you know, sit on somewhere on a sort of stupid continuum. And it's, <laughs> you know, exactly where they sit on there. But it's going to be somewhere on there, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that guy, and I'll never forget that guy in, in Guilty Gear who is in a bed. That's just one of the, we talked about it, I think, previously when we were talking about fighting games. But that's just yeah, one of the most man. majestically stupid uh, <laughs> yeah, character designs I've ever seen. It's just extraordinary. Um so they're all there. I can't. I can barely think of a kind of po-faced uh, fighting game, to be honest. Um, you know, Tekken is, is is obviously its own unique kind of brand of stupid with its you know roster of kangaroos and bears <laughs> and robots. Uh, you know, alien ninjas. Uh, you know, literal demons. Um, all that kind of stuff. And I've always found that um, incredibly charming and endearing and stupid. You know, and I love the core like game loop of Tekken Three. 
back in the day where you'd sort of whiz through arcade mode with mm. each of your characters and then you'd your reward and it was a real reward back then was to get a little cg movie of, of <laughs> yeah. something stupid happening or something funny happening um you know and that was a really like nifty little you know reward system i always thought to kind of um you know play through the game with the panda <laughs> to get the panda ending or <laughs> Uh, you know, play through the game with the enormous fire-breathing demon to get that ending and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so it was that I always found that immensely good fun. Um, Tekken, so, Tekken Seven has its own version of that. The Tekken games always most of them have like strange side modes or mini games. There was an entire side-scrolling two D beat 'em up in one of them. I can't remember whether it was that was in that was in Tekken Three. Tekken that Force. Was three. I loved Tekken yeah. Force. I used to play that just endlessly. It was so good. Really fun idea. It, it, the movesets are the same as they are in the, the fighter you pick, but you can go in there, I believe, with anyone on the roster. I used to go in with like Brian and just like beat up enemies and do in these weird sort of Mario levels. Uh, it's such a strange idea, but yeah, I love that too. Um, and I guess like I'd love to see more of that sort of thing. Uh, there's actually a bowling game in Tekken 7. <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried bowling. Maybe next time we should, uh, we should we get should on try and do some bowling and see how yeah, it goes. I've, I've not actually tried that either. Um, because I mean, when you log into Tekken, you're not thinking I want to go and do some real bowling now. That's a great idea. The other thought, the other sort of side mode it has though is called Treasure Battle or something. I think it's basically a survival mode uh, where you go through a gauntlet of uh, ever more difficult enemies, and each time you beat an enemy, you get some sort of fighter points that you can spend to unlock cosmetics. And there are so many cosmetics in this game for like almost for every character. Uh, you can customize them to extraordinary degrees uh, to make them look like deliberately ridiculous. You can have like floating skulls or put a teddy bear on your head or give yourself a cool cape um, or change just the effects that happen when you punch someone. Tekken has always had these really fancy flare effects whenever you land a hit, uh, which sort of sells the impact quite nicely without it being sort of bloody or violent. Um, So yeah, I've I've often sort of like just put a podcast on, played through Treasure Battle, uh, gotten to like ridiculously high levels with one particular character just through like muscle memory and learning their combos and stuff. It's a really nice way to learn, and also has that sense of humour uh, and embraces this like inherent stupidity of the roster as well. Which is yeah, I don't know if they like randomise the cosmetics on the people you're fighting in that or they're they're pre-generated, but they're ridiculous. <laughs> like, they really are. like like fighting a guy with like a like a rhino head mask on, or you know, just literally having no idea who you're fighting because they've got a yeah. stupid. A stupid thing over their head that's very good. They're actually almost unrecognizable at points. Um, Soul, the latest Soul Calibur, which is, I think, Soul Calibur 6 now. Um, I love the Soul Calibur games. They actually, for me, occupy a very similar space in my brain to where Tekken lies. Uh, and they also have loads of ridiculous cosmetics where you can dress your d- dudes up in really ridiculous, stupid armor um, and just change the way their weapons look and stuff. And it's, it's just a, it's a sign, I think, that the games know what they are when they do that because... Uh, Though it does look like the next Street Fighter is going to have more of that kind of uh, individual character customization, uh, which is out later this year. But yeah, not, I don't know a huge amount about it yet. And I think I'll, there's a, yeah. I think Tekken Eight's coming this year as well. Oh, awesome! I mean, I'll so, I'll, 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 I'll buy and try and play both, but uh, I, I just know I'll end up landing on Tekken. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I, know, I know myself, and that's not a reflection on Street Fighter at all. It's just kind no. of where I'm at with those games. It's very reassuring. There's a story mode as well, which I played around a bit with as well, which is quite good fun. Like yeah. it starts off as a really po-faced like, yeah. detective story. Yeah, and it's then, weird. Like, a few minutes later, 
um, Hihachi is like, like like throwing rockets back at giant robots. And, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that's very funny. Um, <laughs> very, it's very indulgent uh, in a, a way that I, I found it like quite irritating when I first tried to play it. I talked about it on the podcast like years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did eventually return to it and kind of embrace its silliness and in- incredibly overproduced CGI and like interludes between like one or two round battles that are over in like seconds and then there's like a five minute cutscene. <laughs> something ridiculous happens. Yeah, well, like I, one of the first kind of because you do these you do these like general story missions which kind of um, you know have a kind of overarching narrative and then there's character stories which are little sort of short stories. Um, uh, you know, which kind of fit into the main story. So it's like, play these uh, if you want to, you know, get some more info on the on the tournament or whatever. And I played one, one of my favourite characters is Bob, um, mm-hmm. who, apart from anything else, um, looks extraordinarily like my friend Matt, but like a morbidly <laughs> obese version of him. Like, it's it's frightening. It, it could almost have been modelled off him. And he obviously does like a, like a he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt, and like um, uh, does like fat guy moves, like you know, hurling his belly towards people, um, which I appreciate as a, a gentleman of carriage myself. But like <laughs> fat representation, we, I too could be a could be a, a you know a street fighter. Um, but like his little story chapter, um, he's fighting this guy and he wins. He fights Brian and he wins, uh, but then he falls through the floor because he's too fat. And it just says he never made it to the tournament, which, you know, that's, that's quite funny. Like, if Brian wins, you can play it from Brian's perspective as mm. well. If he wins, a helicopter uh, fires a, like a massive missile at him and he catches it and throws it back at them and makes <laughs> Like, that's what he does. But uh, yeah, Bob, Bob just uh, falls through the floor and doesn't make it any further. Bob never made it to the um, tournament. That should be on his gravestone. R.O.P. Bob. So some of the characters we, <laughs> we played... Uh, in our, I, I mean, you, I, my character was selected at random at one point because I was faffing around, couldn't decide who it was, and I ended up with a dude from The Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. It was so so weird that he's in it. So I can't remember. I don't. I didn't watch through The Walking Dead to the point where he appears, but I know him by reputation because he's in a few just incredibly brutally horrible scenes, um, and he's he's this absolutely just straightforward evil guy who has. Um, a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire, uh, which he has a name for, and uh, yeah, he just goes around just being just horribly killing people and occasionally zombies with it. And then he, for this game that, as we've described, is so silly and so frivolous in lots of ways. For this guy to sort of be in it, it's so weird. <laughs> it's really strange, and uh, you know, I, I've seen a clip of the you know the, the the famous scene with him, and like they really, really paid attention to like his walk and his <laughs> mm, facial yeah. expression. And the kind of sort of malevolent way he sort of saunter, saunters along, mm. um, ridiculous. And I kicked the shit out of you while you were yeah. panda. Brutal. <laughs> it was really so, horrible. It's like this is what would happen if yeah. this guy, <laughs> yeah. the panda, he didn't like. <laughs> so uh, the panda, I was thinking, oh, you know, I was trying to use use my reach. Got these big arms. Panda's massive. Um, so he's starting to try and swing, and then you know, the moment I'd get halfway through a swipe, and then just get bludgeoned in the face by a baseball bat <laughs> covered in barbed wire, then uppercated, <laughs> then repeatedly punched, hit over the head with the barbed wire. It's like, no, leave the panda alone. It's just an innocent battle panda. <laughs> what has he ever? Done? What has he ever done, or she ever done to anyone? Uh, and that was, I mean, that was kind of. I quite enjoyed those, those random matchups actually, because not quite knowing who you're going to run in, into is kind of made it. it Almost like a bit spicier and uh, creates those incongruous matchups that you wouldn't necessarily 
choose. Um, yeah, that's I did, right. I, I did have to play as uh, Prince Noctis, the main character from Final Fantasy Fifteen, who's also in this game. And just they don't bother making the art styles work together <laughs> across this character. He's <laughs> just a straight up Final Fantasy character who could summon swords and axes out of thin air uh, to just decimate uh, that his opponents. And um, Tekken is always kind of fist fighting game first and foremost. So having these uh, dudes with weapons in is kind of, again, another sort of weirdly incongruous thing. And uh, not that like Tekken is, should be realistic. This isn't a criticism. It's just almost like <laughs> just to hammer home how silly and how weird this game could be at times. Yeah, it's 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 deeply silly, um, and some of those like finishing not finishing move, but the sort of special moves you do when you're <coughs> low on health, you know, they're they're really satisfying, and they yeah. they don't get old either. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. Um, you know, the, the I just did one when I think it was Anna. And yeah. she was she was dressed up like a kind of um, I put a random costume on for her, and she was dressed up like a kind of uh, cyberpunk geisha from the future, I guess. Yeah, um, and good description. See, to see her do her special move where she sort of kicked you up into the sky and then shot you in a bazooka. Um, yeah. I just burst out laughing. It was very but, funny. I think, yeah, I think we were laughing for like most of the time we were playing, actually, to be honest, just because seeing those moves play out. And also uh, there's really nice little touches um, where if both characters are really low on health and they throw attacks at each other that are going to hit within a certain amount, it seems. It goes into slow-mo and you very slowly see the fists kind of reach past each other and then one of you just hits a millisecond before and wins wins the round and then it goes, great! And you're yeah. like, yeah, like, yeah, that was great, actually. <laughs> I love so, that. I love that it slows down to show you how close something is. Yeah, yeah. It seems to build comedy in as well. Like, mm. you know, if you're about to do your super move and you, you, you know, you do a quip, like, get ready for this. <laughs> and then the other person just clips you in the face and cancels <laughs> yeah. it. It's just, just very really funny. Good. Yeah. It's funny every single time as well. Like, it, it happens surprisingly often as well. Just that. Uh, I don't know, again, going back to that instinctive button presses thing, if you just tap uh, one of the punch buttons, uh, you're going to do a quick punch. And if you're really, really close in health to one another, you kind of know that a way to respond to those big wind-up special attacks, unless if you're not blocking, is to do a quick attack. So it's the sort of thing that sounds really situational, as, as though it should almost never happen, but it happens just just enough to seem really dramatic. It's really yeah. nicely tuned. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm definitely going to be uh, playing a bit more of uh, Tekken, I think, in yeah. the run-up to the new game coming up. It sounds as though um, this isn't the only combat game you've been playing, Jamie. I believe you've uh, been uh, leaning into the Devil May Cry persuasion. Yeah, so this is a Devil May Cry uh, DMC. Uh, this mm. is sort of an update because I talked about it on a previous pod. I can't remember if it was with you or might have been with Marsh. Um, but yeah, I kind of I talked about it like, a long time ago <laughs> on this podcast uh, and sort of, uh, you know, said I was, um, you know, enjoying it. I'd had played the first couple of levels. And I was like, I'll definitely finish it. And then I didn't. I just left it alone for ages and ages and ages. <laughs> and then I finally picked it up, like, and I was just after the first boss of that game. And I, um, you know, played through the rest of it in, you know, total of like six or seven hours. And like, um, it's such a good game. It's such a good game. Yeah, um, it's if you read the reviews of it, there's a lot of um, people kind of down on it and a lot of kind of fans down on it as well. I think because it was, you know, made by a, a, a different team and, and, you know, working out of uh, the UK, I think, rather than, you know, the, the original team. 
but I was so impressed by it. It stood the test of time really well. I think it yeah. might have aged really well too. Um, and playing through it, it's just a kind of feast, really. There's some really spectacular level design. Um, you know, there's one level where you go into like a, a kind of Fox News analog, and as you sort of approach the sort of boss in there, it turn you're sort of um, going through, uh, you know, a level that's like based on the graphics of yes. uh, like a, uh, you know, the title sequence of one of these shows. Like the ticker tape uh, and the, the scrolling the news tape bands. And all that yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And that's really striking um, clever. And, and, and pretty. And you end up fighting a boss who is like a kind of Rush Limbaugh mm-hmm. uh, kind of guy, which is like really well done and actually like the way that they do it where he's kind of on sort of projected on screens in front of you and then you're sort of seeing his real face and then he's kind of glitching out and sending out energy waves towards you it's all really cool and and slick um and there's other levels uh, you know beyond that which are also uh you know really uh, creative um and like you know it's interesting reading the reviews back then because there's a lot of people a lot of criticism of the boss fights a lot of criticism of the like traversal, but I all, I found it all immensely fun. You know, the basic way that you traverse, which is by holding down R2 to sort of fire up your angel powers mm-hmm. and then pressing uh, square to sort of zip line towards things. And then that being mixed in with having to sort of swap over to R2 to do your, your devil version of it, uh, to sort of pull walls down and jump onto them. Yeah, I just, I found it really enjoyable. And I also found that by the end of the game, the combat was really clicking with me. Mm. And as I understand it, this is quite a kind of common thing with a sort of successful Devil May Cry game, which is your first playthrough is sort of you learning the ropes and sort of getting the hang of it and learning how to use all these things together. And then you sort of roll into, you know, new game plus or or, diff- or new, uh, new versions of the game with all that, you know, sort of skills upgrade and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's just by the end of the game, it was like a really satisfying learning curve wasn't that i was like losing more early on it's just that the game is like urging you sort of um level by level to kind of get into its groove and to kind of get into its its sort of mind frame which is to be as sort of stylish and over the top as as possible and it doesn't do that by like just sort of slapping on the wrist and saying not good enough not good enough it keeps giving you toys to play with like slowly but surely um, across the entire game, which you add to your repertoire. Um, and I found myself using all of them, um, uh, you know, and everything has its own little purpose. Um, everything has its own strengths and weaknesses. It felt a little bit like kind of, um, you know, the modern Doom games in that sense that like they've actually worked out use cases for everything. So you're you're always going to be using your entire arsenal and the more you change between weapons and styles um the more points you get uh and i just thought that was really clever and it didn't make didn't make me feel hectored or harried by the game to kind of get good it just it just kind of um i felt um looked after and like i was going to have a good time um and satisfied by by the sort of um you know the final few levels which really give you loads of opportunities to just fight fucking loads of monsters yeah. um, and have a great time doing that. Um, yeah, re- really, it- really good game. And actually, the, another thing that's aged well is the story and the narrative. Yes. I mean, it's dumb as hell on purpose. Um, but actually, it's, um, 
it works. <laughs> it works. It's kind of you actually end up caring about the characters a bit, which I was sort of surprised by. Even you know, even though it's kind of sub Saturday morning cartoon kind mm. of stuff, it's done with enough um, attitude and silliness, um, and that I actually kind of was engaged with the main character. Um, you know, even though he's kind of really kind of blandy anti-hero guy, and mm. there's something about the way the sense of humor to that game is tuned that actually makes it sort of more earnest than you you'd sort of expect it to. Um, so yeah, I was I just wanted to sort of report back on that game after after leaving it sort of months ago, and just sort of I think it's interesting how I think a lot of people, if they went back to that game now, would would find themselves. It still looks great. It's in that kind of weird space now where games that are 10 years old for example look brilliant on a steam deck you know they're kind of mm. perfect for that sort of um technology because uh, you can run everything at ultra and all that kind of all that kind of business so yeah DM, dmc Devil more cry i've just been i had a great time with it and i immediately rolled into a new game plus and and uh you know they remix the enemies and they change things up and yeah it's just like lots of incitements and inducements to have fun and express yourself through your ridiculous you know spinning blades of death yeah so it's, it's it really is a good one i never understood the traversal criticism because uh it's not like like previous devil may cry's even had traversal to, beyond just <laughs> running around <laughs> uh so just adding these bits where you get to zoom up around these environments and that also kind of freed them up to do environments where gravity is pointing in different directions uh like if, i think there's one particular level where you, you're kind of fighting your way through a smashed up universe where everything's a bit topsy-turvy um yeah. and so yeah, you can't just run around that conventionally you have to have zip line mechanics and stuff to actually let that happen i always thought it was completely fine it, it was wasn't certainly wasn't a detriment and um, the combat system is just a really sharp nice devil may cry combat system uh as you say that incitement to just get more creative with it it's uh great devil may cry games give you like a really nice toolbox of uh both melee and ranged weapons and one of my favorite things about the devil may cry system is this interesting decision about when to use melee and when to go with the guns um because the guns can hold enemies in the air and juggle them and extend combos uh, and serve as almost kind of like a crowd control, especially if you're using like the shotguns, things like that, which have the wider spread, which are great for like bigger enemies. And then you combine the shotgun with scythes that are really big range, for example, and you start to come up with like loads of ideas just on the fly as you're kind of improvising your way through these fight sequences. And at the end, it'll go, it's scoring you all the time, but not in a kind of punitive way. As you say, it's not there to slap you on the wrist. It's there to sort of like celebrate if you've been amazing. But I think, you know, if you're even halfway decent in a combat system, it will just go, it'll tell you you're brilliant anyway. Uh, <laughs> you might not be like a SSS mega ranking, but that's, you want to get there. That's why a new game plus exists. And, and the more enemies there are, and when they remix those environments, new game plus, that's just more opportunity to score points and to extend those combos and completely master the combat environment you're in. Uh, is is such an effective combat system. I think that that game in particular does a great job. I think it's a great entry to the series, actually. Um, and if, if you like that, I think you'd really enjoy Devil May Cry Five, which I I loved. Um, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna install that next. I think. I think yeah, you're absolutely right. And doing things like just making really judicious choice choices, like in the final third of the game, they give you a new angel weapon, which is like a is blades that you sort of throw, and mm. they can stun lock enemies in place. And it kind of makes you go, oh, okay, well, I don't need my guns to do that now. That's sort of taken care of. So 
I can sort of switch up my gun game here, or I, or, or I don't have to. I don't have to because I don't want to. But mm. like, like just sort of prodding you in the right direction with with that stuff. And I, I'm really interested in playing it at like much higher difficulties as well, um, but because you know, at that point, clearly, like you know, switching seamlessly between different styles becomes sort of vital to success rather than just style. And I'm wondering how that how that kind of plays out, you know, I think that might be really fun if I could get into it. Yeah. Yeah. The great thing about, um, Devil May Cry 5 is, it's kind of, it, it's got its own take on the story and it's got surprisingly expressive characters just because the graphics have gone up a level. Um, but because you play as three characters and they all have their own versions of those movesets, uh, that belong to them that uh you know you know uh you play as dante and one of his weapons is a motorbike <laughs> for example <laughs> uh then there's just a, a kind of dark wizard who can summon minions to help him and like create spikes out of the ground and then uh, so you, you've got those just three main characters and each of them has similar equivalent scope uh to create and you know create your own play styles uh, and to fight the, the way you want to through through these environments uh, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a good next step once you've mastered DMC. But yeah, I'm completely with you, DMC. Uh, I'm playing it at the time, being super impressed with it, and it always ran at just an amazing clip while presenting all these interesting, fun environments. Well, yeah, uh, it's also got yeah. this thing where you know, you know, you'll you'll be in a corridor, and the 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 corridor will suddenly like shoot away from you, or the mm. walls will dissolve, dissolve, or the the floor will glitch out. It's got this like really mutable sense to the environments it's really unreal sense to the environments um which i haven't seen that often to be honest it it's it 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 retains a sort of sense of the uncanny and the bizarre um you know without like actually trying to disorientate you it just makes everything everything seem really crazy and and sort of uh, uh it really contributes to that sort of sense of unreality to the whole thing yeah the, and also the... it's got these like big like like massive set piece action sequences towards the end of the game as well which hmm. i'm just i'm always gonna i'm always gonna go for the bit where the the monster guy turns into a you know uh multi-story you know sized <laughs> yeah. version of himself and you know having to uh, you know fight that and all that sort of stuff is just you know a great laugh really yeah D- dmc does the, uh that environment stuff and the boss fights i think um way better than dove may cry 5 actually uh some of the boss fights you get into in dove may cry 5 a pretty annoying there's one giant walking spider thing that just goes around in circles and i can't believe it made it into the final game <laughs> um and the environments are one of the things that really suffer from some them wanted to sort of hit 60 frames a second to have these beautifully flowing animations that are essential to the quality of the combat uh you tend to find yourself running around lots of sewers and things like that so it's definitely a step backwards in that regard definitely quite but once you once you get that itch for the combat that only devil may cry really does it's a it's a fantastic take on that as well so yeah it's a great series um have you ever attempted to go back to like three which is like sort of a lot of people would say is the all-time classic one i played it at the time and it was great but i think it's a tricky to go back to those sort of preset yeah, 2d I've, environments now I've, I've got them all um and i played them a little bit uh, like platinum games is always something i platinum games and their like you know antecedents and successes and that kind of stuff are always stuff that i want to kind of get into more but i always slightly stumble on and like dmc has been like a really good sort of um sort of starting point for that 
you know, I've played a bit of Vanquish, but slightly bounced off it. Mm. Um, a bit of Bayonetta, slightly bounced off it, which I know is like Crate and Crowbar blasphemy. Because um, <laughs> uh, I know I'd, I know I'd love that game if I could get it to get myself to click with it. Um, but for me, I need like a lot of care and attention. I'm a I'm a meek little boy when it comes to uh, these these kind of games, and so I do need like to be really really looked after by them. I think, and I think DMC really does that. And I think those other games are a bit more like, you know, you have to kind of come towards their ridiculousness a bit more. You know, you have to kind of buy into their craziness. Um, uh, so yeah, but I, hopefully now I've kind of had my. Uh, you know, consciousness awoken uh, by DMC, uh, things might improve. It's definitely a, a, all of them have similar ideas, I would say, when it comes to particularly their combat systems. So um, once you've cracked one, I think you, you carry over a lot to the others as well. Um, but yeah, it's a good that's a good one to start with uh, now for current players on the Steam Deck. I imagine that's perfect for it, actually. Uh, that's just spot on. Great yes, no, definitely. Yeah, uh, my own portable uh, revelatory experience uh, this week, actually. What with, have you been uh, playing? I've been playing, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, it's kind of, yeah. It's kind of, I don't know, elusive. Uh, uh, apparently it's a sequel to a classic. It's third-person uh, sandbox <laughs> open-world game where you play a some sort of imp uh, who has to rescue a princess from uh, a giant sort of snake thing, and she's in the castle. And yeah, you've got to slowly. No, I've, it's it's one of the best games ever. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it just, it just is one of my favorite games ever. Um, I played it to death a few years back, and for some reason, so I was playing like for Spoken, which was uh, released last which month. Which I guess is something you do now. You play for Spoken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of them. Yeah, and um, I kind of like I, I I was playing it, and it was it was just fine. I, it's, it's, then but I was skimming along the surface of the discourse that was around that game. Um, and it was very much, I think, a case of uh, there being not much else to talk about in the world of games and therefore like the, the takes piled upon takes. And I think like I'm looking forward to sort of playing it over the course of a few months. And once everything's settled down, actually sort of thinking about it and rendering a verdict. Um, I think a bunch of the criticisms I've read about it have been pretty unfounded now I've actually played it. Um, but there was something about it that felt kind of soulless in the open world uh, and it felt like i was sort of ticking off boxes uh give it, i've got a map full of objective icons and blobs and things uh, question marks to look at and i, I just sort of like hoover up areas uh, fight enemies uh, open chests and it all felt just kind of it was just empty and unsatisfying and i was craving i thought i was really fancy open world games so the way you could sort of like really mill around and sort of do your own thing and go in a particular direction and uh, i just remembered breath of the world and that is a game that uh even though it's an open world game it does have those objective markers and things they're super sort of generic you basically it's a game about exploring uh climbing up very tall things spotting where you want to go next making a plan to get there and then improvising as you pick up new equipment and uh, your equipment breaks and you're constantly cooking food and picking up new weapons and learning to use them and the whole thing is underpinned by just a this astonishing uh physics sandbox system uh that has just not been matched or really emulated by any other any other game i've played every item you have in your inventory you can drop on the floor and they all obey the laws of physics consistently throughout the game world uh, by which i mean 
if you're in a very hot place on a volcano and you drop meat on the floor, it catches fire after a moment um, because it's so hot there. Then you pick it up and now it's cooked meat. Like the, the item has responded to its, uh, you know, dynamic environment and changed. And cooked meat heals you a bit more. Um, and if you're in a lightning storm, uh, if you're wearing metal armor, it will start to fizzle and crackle. And if you don't take it off, you get zapped. Uh, but because you know if there's such this incredible consistency for materials and uh, environmental dynamics throughout the entire open world. You can use that as a weapon. So you can have a, a mob of goblins like chasing you in a thunderstorm and you can take off all of your metal armor, but drop a metal shield behind you. And on the floor, it will be struck by lightning. And if there are enemies around it, they will get zapped by the lightning as well. Completely just systems interacting in just perfect ways that are so, so gratifying. Um, and it even extends to the shrines, which are each little puzzle dungeons, like very self-contained, just a few rooms uh, with a theme. And I was playing one earlier today, and it was about collecting circuits. Uh, so the electricity was playing around these circuits. And you could see that the way it wanted you to complete it was to uh, complete the circuits to un- open doors to bring out new, new metal items that would let you complete other circuits. But I shrugged and said, no, I'm just going to do this with my equipment. So I just took all my metal shields and metal bits of armor and, and swords um, placed them all across the circuit and with my own equipment solved the puzzle. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. To, yeah, and it's, the game is constantly just letting you improvise like that. And it's not it's not prescriptive. It's, it's beautiful, it beautifully guides you towards zones and then uh, forces you to encounter like those dynamic environmental challenges. So, for example, in hot areas, you will suffer damage unless you're wearing certain types of armor or taking certain elixirs that you can brew yourself from the, uh, the things you're finding in the environment. If you go to a cold place, you need to wrap up warm with the right equipment. So each time you encounter one of those environmental barriers, you kind of look around and solve it for yourself. It isn't like, you need to go here to get this item to do this thing. It is, look, there are consistent rules throughout this world, and we don't particularly mind how you solve this. Just go out and fix it. Figure it out for yourself. Um, it's a beautiful sense of freedom. It's a gorgeous game as well. I can't believe that it runs and looks so beautiful on the Switch, uh, which is an incredible machine. I love it. Um, and I know it's going to have its life cycle and be retired at some point. I dearly hope that whatever Nintendo does next, it is completely backwards compatible with all the Switches. The Switch is an incredible library. It's got one of Nintendo's best libraries ever so that this game can survive and live on forever. It's absutely wonderful. It's genuinely a joy to play, even today. And just a couple of months to go till the sequel as well. Okay, yeah, that's kind of one of the things in the back of my mind as well, um, like why I wanted to pick it back up. Because I wanted to fully complete it. There's some DLC that I haven't done, and there's some like equipment I'd like to pick up. But even just solving the big dungeons again and going through the motions and kind of like even understanding, uh, remembering well each of those areas, actually just exploring them again is is just uh, it's a meditative, wonderful experience. I love it. Yeah, I remember like when I first I first started playing it, and I just spent. It's that weird thing of like someone asks you what you did over the weekend and you go and you go, you think about it and then you go, Oh, I did nothing actually. And it's, really, <laughs> it's a nice thing. You know, you sort of saying, Oh yeah, that was great. I did nothing. I just sort of did stuff. And like my first playthrough of Zelda, I just lost 25, 30 hours of my first playthrough. I didn't do anything, literally nothing at all beyond walking around, climbing up stuff, 
jumping off with my glider. Mm. And that is that is completely unheard of in any video game ever, really. And loads of people had that experience, you know, where you're just like, well, you've got this huge world to explore and I can kind of just go at it however I, however I want. And the pure joy of um, exploring itself is is the reward. And that is, I think, um, Elden Ring has, has got a bit of that now. But mm. um, I think apart from that, there's not many games that have actually uh, managed to conjure that sense of mystery and and have you sort of conquer that sense of mystery purely by the mechanics of how you move around um, the world itself. And that's like a real... Um, triumph, and it'll be interesting to see how they, you know, develop it or fail to develop it in the in the sequel. Um, yeah, it seems like such a hard success to repeat because the world is so beautifully designed. Um, I think Elder, Elder Ring is a pretty good shelter, actually. Um, that Elden Ring really is a game where you can just point, go put yourself in a direction, and you're going to see something weird, or fight something weird, or find something weird, <laughs> and um, the relentlessly inventive design of uh, enemies, in particular in Elden Ring uh, from from software, is uh, is actually my favourite form of discovery in that game. Just seeing uh, these horrible, scurrying giant hands, almost like spiders, like Whoa, uh, yeah. horrible things to fight. That, that, they're just in one castle and they've taken over. And then you'll go somewhere else, and they'll they'll be like a dragon or something. It's uh, extraordinary stuff. Uh, that game's really grown on me. I keep meaning to restart that one as well. Um, but there's something also just quite earnest and plaintive about Zelda Breath of the Wild that is very appealing. Um, all the characters you meet are just, they're not like, they're all, there's something very charming about it. <laughs> like the NPCs are uh, all just kind of like trying to make their way through, through the world. Most of them are like merchants and they belong to certain cities. You visit the Goron village and they're like rock dudes who eat rocks and all they do is eat rocks and sleep and occasionally fight big things <laughs> and it's like yeah that's all i need actually from that's all the characterization i need for, for this village i don't need like complex evolving plots from this one um because the the you know, it's cliche to say but the plot is the one you make yourself by wandering around and, and and finding things i think there's a brave it's a brave decision in breath of the wild is to make um weapons and equipment uh expire so you can find an awesome weapon, and most of them, some of them can be reforged, and some of them can uh, can be protected, but very rare ones. But almost everything you use is going to break at some point uh, in terms of weapons. That is one of the things that really kind of annoyed me when I st- first played the game. But now, like the reason why exploration and conquering tasks inventively is so satisfying is because I've lost the sense that I need to care about gear. Uh, beyond what it might do to protect me from environments like i need some uh warm gear to keep me warm in the cold places that's all i have to care about i don't it doesn't have a level attached to it particularly there are there are like levels like one to five i think levels of armor in terms of the protection they offer and you really don't have to think about it the main and it's sort of it disconnected something for me like uh, in a healthy way my association between uh, stat, big numbers and doing well. <laughs> yes. Uh, essentially, that's something that was kind of so hardwired into me, especially as like a Diablo player and, um, you know, uh, uh, action RPG player and someone who loves to kind of finesse builds and really get the numbers moving. Uh, Breath of the Wild, like one of the great things it's done for me as a player is that it's it's clipped that link between feeling good about what I'm doing and the number of, you know, 
the amount of damage I'm doing at any particular time, or oh, I've got the best sword, or oh, I've got the best piece of armor I could possibly find. It's it's it, it mutes all that into the background and just leaves you with the world itself. Um, I think that's one of the probably the most enduring thing for me about that game is that it's actually changed me as a player because now when I play games that are all about kind of uh, rote loot grinding to get higher numbers. I no longer value that anywhere near as much because of this game. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's 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 like all about expressing yourself creatively in this space rather than rather than trying to sort of tick off boxes. It's funny because one of the ways it does that is by killing you mercilessly. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Like particularly early on, like you drown constantly. Yes, like, yeah. like the story of Hyrule ends with like Link falling off a cliff. <laughs> Yeah, and dying um, horribly. Um, at the end, you know. I think that's that's kind of interesting too. Like, I know that they took a lot from like the original Zelda game with that, like making the world mysterious, but also like dangerous, but not, hopefully not in ways that kind of stop you from playing, but just sort of teach you about what you can and can't do, so that you can then attain that mastery over it. Yeah, the it, water is like traversing water is a a constant problem but it's something you have to navigate so there are boats and um like rafts with sails on them uh and brilliantly instead of just sort of like pressing the sail button and then sailing you have to find a, a coric leaf which is a type of weapon and you only have a certain limited number of slots which carry weapons so it's it's quite important to carry one of these if you're near water uh, and what you do is you stand on the boat and then you flap this thing and the wind generated by you flapping the leaf pushes the boat forwards because this game isn't about pressing A to sail, it's about, well, you're constantly interacting in a very tactile way with the physics of the environment that you're in. So it, like pressing A to sail would be just a, the, the worst thing it could do in that situation. You don't even have to press anything to get on the boat. You have to swim out and then climb up onto it and then get, get your leaf. Um, it, and then there are other ways to navigate as well. You have these uh, spells that you can cast, and one of them is to create blocks of ice out of any piece of water which you can climb. Uh, and you can sort of um, you can cross vast amounts of water quite slowly if you kind of make these blocks one by one and hop across them. Um, and then, or you can eat uh, a potion you've made that gives you loads and loads of stamina, and that's what drains while you're swimming. And if that runs out, that's when you drown. But so you could just, or you could lug something and swim across that way. And that's just three things I could think of. I could go on for ages about just how to cross water in that game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or you could find a really high point and then sail down on your glider and uh, avoid the water altogether. Like there's just constant ideas happening about how to actually just get over the most basic obstacle in in the world um and the world itself is just it, it feels so handcrafted from area to area um i'd never get the sense that this has been just sort of procedurally generated uh it feels as though you know that that mountain is there for a purpose and that plateau is there and these steps leading up to increasingly cold places have been placed there for a reason. And there may well be some procedural generation of workers kind of to create the raw clay that is eventually molded into this thing. But every area, it feels like really intentional, like the flow of each area, how some Absolutely. areas are giant basins that you have to go into with a, a mysterious forest full of fog at the bottom. Um, and then you'll go up into these huge mountains and you'll be uh, asked to glide between these really high points to uh, find these shrines and do these puzzles. Um, yeah. I, I could gush about it. And then, like, you know, the first, the first sight of a dragon, you know, in the night, <laughs> yeah. those kind of things yeah, floating yeah. along. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it's like, and I, I was like, I must be able to sort of, I felt oh, I wanted to reach out and touch them when because they're just almost like these strands 
on on the the breeze uh, that is just really far away. Uh, and the other thing in this game, if you want to indulge it, is there's a whole camera system where you can photograph pretty much every object in the game, and it fills up your compendium. Um, and you can use that. So if you, if you find a cool sword, you'd be like, oh. Uh, and it breaks. You're like, hmm, where could I find another one of those? And the compendium will let you locate it in the world. But not again, not with an objective marker, but by saying it's in Katakano Forest. And then you look at your map and you figure it out for yourself. Uh. It's funny, isn't it, that like there are a few, you know, a very finite number of open worlds that have been created in video games, which kind of tra- end up transcending sort of video games and almost become sort of part of the shared sort of imagining of, of you know people who've played them hmm. like they come become sort of bigger than the game itself and sort of something that people really value so like maybe not like open world necessarily but just you know worlds like the, uh, uh, like dark souls um skyrim you know breath of the wild there are a few like spaces like that which kind of sl- you know take on a slightly different quality i think for anyone who's played them just because just because they have a sort of ineffable sense of of place to them that you sort of never forget, um, and you know, and I think Elden Elden Ring has has that as well. But it is interesting how few I think those those open worlds and, and those video game worlds are the ones that really really elevate. Mm. Um, you know, I've always thought that video games have had this promise for like since their infancy of like, you know, recreating that kind of Arthurian tale of like journeying off into the unknown and and encountering sort of crazy monsters and, uh, you know, far-flung castles and, you know, and video games have been trying to emulate that experience since the very beginning with varying like levels of success. But like, I do think um, in recent years, technology has has been you know kind of in place to do that for quite a long time but i think creatively video games have started to like look at games like you know shadow of the colossus which was an early yeah. sort of um hmm. trailblazer for the mysterious um exploration kind of genre um and you're seeing more and more of it now and i just think it's i just think it's great because i find that when I'm playing Elden Ring um, or playing Breath of the Wild, um, uh, or even when I'm playing a game like NetHack, you know, which doesn't have any graphics, but the reason I'm playing it is to is to see what's over the horizon in some shape or form, or see what lurks in the depths, um, and that feeling of being surprised by something, or you know, uh, you know, mastering the wilderness even to get really grandiose about it. I just think is is one of the things video games can do best, but it's also one of the rarest things that they do because it's so hard um, to get right. And there are so many, you know, open world games that even if they're beautiful, you know, they don't manage to nail that sense of mystery and discovery that I think we all kind of crave. I think there are there are really difficult decisions to be made when creating like an open world game or an exploration game about how you limit the player and how you guide the player and teach the player how to play, how to progress basically. Um, and I think like uh, so many open world games, uh, even though I've really enjoyed Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, and I've enjoyed playing lots of Ubisoft open world or open city games, uh, 
those I've not authored those experiences. They're, they've been laid out for me like breadcrumbs on the trail to pick up, go to each next cutscene, to the next cutscene, to boss fight, to the next cutscene. Um, and I think it's a very hard decision to make to take a, a lot of that stuff out and sort of hopefully your world is interesting enough <laughs> that the player wants to explore it by themselves. Uh, but that's a gamble, right? So you might, you might again end up with the thing where this this place feels empty. I think Shadow of the Colossus is a really interesting example because um, if you, I love the game, it's fantastic and it's stuck in my, my mind forever. Uh, but it, it's interesting because there's actually nothing much to discover in that open world. Uh, the open world is kind of this texture, this open sense of space and atmosphere between these boss fights that you encounter. But if you were to remove that and just have each boss fight be its own level, the game would not be that that revelatory game. Like if you restructured it even slightly, it would lose that sense of like it, it would stop being enigmatic and mysterious. Um, players have spent years kind of roaming around around the world because they think there must be something here. There must be some secret sword or something. And that, I don't think there is. I think it's just there to be beautiful and to make you feel a certain way as you're in this desolate expanse by yourself, slowly losing your humanity, uh, <laughs> hunting down these beautiful creatures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just extraordinary stuff. Um, but if you're, I mean, I imagine if you're sitting around trying to think of what an open world game might be like if you're at Ubisoft, for example, it feels as though all these tutorial systems you've put in that have worked in previous games just, just put all that in the bin and do something really desolate and weird uh it's just a because there must be they're obviously incredibly resource intensive to make uh those decisions i imagine are quite difficult to take uh and uh, the fact that nintendo did it with zelda like one of their flagship series is a testament to just uh, how, <laughs> how much they trust their designers to get it right <laughs> i'm really interested in the game that's coming out from the are they called Heartbleed? They're the people who made um, Hyperlight Drifter, oh, yeah. um, which is a game I really like, and mostly because of the soundtrack by Disaster Piece, I think yeah, it's awesome. is like just on its own, just operates as like a really good, like ambient um, chip tune uh, album. It's just beautiful and brilliant. Uh, I love Disaster Piece, um, and they're doing um, a new Hyperlight Drifter game. I can't remember the title off the top of my head, and I won't plague the listeners ears with the sound of my keyboard but they're doing a 3d roguelike open world um game uh which you know just sounds like a fascinating thing and it's really nice that technology is now at a point where like essentially indie game uh companies are able to like tread the same water as as some of these you know the reason one of these games have been so rare is because they're a huge risk to take Mm. you know um if you're going to make the, if you're going to make a big mysterious world, you know, you you best know exactly what you're doing, um, and you best hope that players want to explore it because, you know, uh, if they don't, then you're screwed. Um, but I think you know, I mean, Elden Ring, you know, that was you know that's a game made, you know, what more than a decade after Dark Souls, and they they walked very slowly up to the point where they made that game, you know, mm. and so like. It's really interesting. I think it's going to happen more and more in the coming years is seeing open world and open world analogs in the indie game space. And I think that's a really exciting prospect. I'm super excited about the new Hyperlight Drifter uh, game just because that dev 
um, team just has a really unusual way of thinking about stuff. And I think their aspirations are sky high. And mm. I'm, I'm, I'm confident there's like lots of other kind of analogs to that kind of going on at the moment that, you know, hope to kind of um, build on that stuff. I played a game uh, 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 quite recently called Below, which was out of oh, yeah. um, Capybara Games, which yeah. is kind of uh, uh, an unpopular game, I think, when it came out because it was very, very forbidding and difficult um, and didn't really uh, reward um, players enough, I think. And I played, I played it recently in its original form and agreed with them. And then I played the version that they made with checkpointing in, which solves the game entirely and actually uh, makes it completely playable. Really good. That game also has absolutely extraordinary music. Um, really, really out of this world good music. Um, and it's really worth a play um, because it is a roguelike that attempts to kind of capture that feel of a traditional roguelike of delving deeper and deeper into a kind of really forbidding space mm. um and it didn't do well and i <laughs> didn't sell well that game um and you know it was kind of uh, slightly trashed in the press but i do think what it was gesturing towards and what it was attempting at is is, is the thing i'm most excited at in games and if you can promise me in your game that i'm going to like journey into the depths into the dark um then you know i'm super excited to play it basically yeah that's really interesting that just adding checkpointing uh it just it feels as though the dilemma with these uh games that want to be these kind of discovery experiences and ex- exploration experiences like to what extent do you just leave the player alone and to what extent do you give them uh, pointers um i think uh, elden rings solution is slightly clumsy so you have these fire sites and Whenever you rest at them, um, they're not bonfires. I can't remember what they're called. Um, but this glittering uh, holy light of grace uh, is sights of grace. There you go. Sights of grace. Got it. Sight, sight, yeah, <laughs> got it. Eventually, um, they, they sort of waft towards your next objective, so it gives you a sort of direction to go in. It's a really good idea, but um, I did find it to. Uh, I just didn't think it like quite worked as a way to point you towards certain places. It, for me, it worked perfectly because it just. I, rad- I mean, I could totally understand why it would feel differently, but to me, because it eradicated the kind of stress of having to get back somewhere or, or being lost out, mm. lost out in the wild and kind of having to find my way back, like that is a, you know, that is something that in Dark Souls, you know, before you've unlocked fast travel, is this <laughs> yeah. amazing thing, you know, that you can actually screw yourself completely a couple of moments by you know, not planning for your return journey, uh, which is wonderful. I felt like in Elden Ring, they'd made the decision to basically mean you can sort of teleport around like Nightcrawler whenever you wanted to. <laughs> um, but actually that did end up being additive because it helped me explore the world. And as that world goes on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and by God, does it get bigger as yeah. the thing gets, gets towards the end, um, I was thankful for and it. And it didn't rob the game of any mystery for me. But I totally get that, like, for someone that could easily just rob it of all of that and just be like, well, I'm just Magic Man bouncing around this map. You know, I'm not actually forging my path through the darkness here. I'm just, I'm just sort of, um, sort of like going on London Underground and you never get a sense of uh, what the geography is above. You just have these, like, series of islands and stuff that you venture very, not very far from at all. 
No, I, I actually think uh, fast travel is completely right for the game. I, I was um, thinking more about the, uh, the sort of the way that when you find a site of grace, it sort of gestures in the direction you're supposed to go vaguely. Um, so I think like, you, you're right. The world is so huge, and there's so much reason to go back to, uh, you know, everywhere you visited previously to explore further because there's so much stuff to see and discover. Um, but yeah, there's um. Uh, Ghost of Tsushima is an interesting take on this where you can swipe you can p- pick an objective uh, say I want to do this side quest and then you swipe up on uh, the controller and uh, a gust blows through the environment and all the trees and leaves uh, and the the grass flutters in the direction that you want to go that's a very elegant way to do it so I think maybe actually that's what Elden Ring was going for as well um, I can't really criticise Elden Ring it's really good <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, I've got a friend playing through it at the moment, and he's just you know messaging our WhatsApp group every now and again. It's so fun to like, you know, re-experience some of the like mad, yeah, sort of needle drop moments in that game through someone else kind of getting to them. Um, uh, there's there's a, such a wonderful deliberate absurdity to some of the enemies as well, and bosses in particular in in those games. Uh, uh, actually, I feel like uh, the game's been out for ages, but I still feel like I shouldn't spoil anything about it because people are. It deserves to be discovered completely fresh. All of the surprises in that in that game. Again, incredible Bloody, environments as well. Bloody marvelous! I'd be very excited to see what they do with uh, any DLC. I think because like yeah. FromSoft DLC is always like the best thing they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Bloodborne like, DLC was incredible. It's just uh, best DLC yeah. ever ever played. They're oh, it's so good. They're, yeah, they're, they're proper expansions, like proper. Uh, again, yeah, they, they they are the best at it. I guess because they have time to sort of respond to, you know, mm. I mean, actually, they probably don't have any time to respond uh, to the, uh, uh, the sort of reaction to the game, do they? Because they probably have to embed the, the production of these things deep into the process. But I guess they have some leeway to do that, um, perhaps. Um, it feels very planned out from an early stage, though, because there are like huge plot points and uh, just moments that unlock Vast parts of the story in their both their Dark Souls and um, Bloodborne DLC. Um, so it feels as though you've got to kind of bed that in like fairly early. Like, uh, but it doesn't feel like the DLC. It certainly doesn't feel like the stuff they've cut out of the main game. It really does. It's self-contained brilliance in it, in and of itself. Of those uh, DLC. Well, I mean, packs. like the Old Hunters is just like an origin story for yeah, the entire game. Precisely, precisely. And fantastic. In three stages. Um, ah, wonderful. Oh, it's so good. Um, that game just lives inside me forever. Um, uh, and yeah, the Armored Core game coming from them this year yeah. as well, which, which should be That's fascinating. Cool. I've never played a, an Armored Core game, um, and I was half tempted to kind of fire up an emulator of one of the sort of PS1 era ones, but I actually thought, now just uh, I'll play the new one when it comes out. That's my decision as well. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be an open world action game as well, I think, from what they've said, um, with a heavy focus on action. And uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see them kind of return to one of their root series. Uh, what? Well, uh, not quite Kingsfield, but uh, I think it's one of the earliest <laughs> ones they made. Is article. Echo Knight, yeah, or that <laughs> yeah. one where you you played the president in a in a giant robot suit. I mean, every studio should make a game like that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Was there anything else you've been uh, playing, Jamie, or anything else you wanted to? Yeah, mm-hmm. Deliver Us Mars, um, oh. which is a new game from a studio I think based out of the Netherlands. Um, it's a sequel to a game called um, Deliver Us the Moon, which came out a couple of years ago, um, which I haven't played. 
but I decided to have a go at uh, Deliver Us Mars. For some reason, I expected it to be a kind of Subnautica-like, where you sort of land on an alien world and have to sort of, um, you know, battle by your uh, wits to survive. It's actually not that at all. Mm. Deliver Us Mars is this kind of weird, kind of walking simulator puzzle kind of game. You play as Kathy Johnson, Johansson, sorry. And the game opens, you're in your family home as a child. Everything is bathed in serene orange light. And you walk around your family home, you talk to your dad and your mum and your big sister. And as a player, you, you sit <laughs> you sit there watching this scene thinking, oh, well, this is this is definitely going to end well. Because whenever <laughs> video games do this scene, yeah. flashing back to your childhood with the sun sort of uh, coming in over your beautiful lakefront property, nothing <laughs> bad ever happens when you flash forward from this point. Um, and uh, what happens is, is that... Uh, Deliver Us from Mars is a sequel to Deliver Us the Moon. Deliver Us the Moon was a game about going to the moon and setting up a kind of power generating system that would reflect energy back towards the Earth and sort of help hold back the terrible effects of climate change, which have blasted and burned the surface of the Earth. Um, Deliver Us Mars, obviously, is a sequel to that, takes place some years later. You play as Kathy and her dad. Um, is uh, part of the organization that um, uh, kind of runs all this stuff. Um, uh, and so uh, this game is very, very much an entry in the, that sort of sci-fi genre of sad dad in space, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously like the second or third most popular yeah, sci-fi genre. Classic. Yeah. Um, so early in the game, after you've had that, definitely nothing bad's going to happen here sequence from your childhood and this is a this is all in the like uh, opening minute moments or minutes of the game your dad um absconded with one of the sort of seed ships which was humanity's last hope to kind of escape the dying earth um and he buggered off with it um for for reasons unknown Hmm. um and years later you are sort of working for the sort of space earth agency um, your sister is kind of the sort of head astronaut, head hero there, and uh, you get a distress call coming from Mars, which turns out to be your dad. And you go with your sister and another couple of sort of astronauts on a mission to kind of find out what happened, find out why he took the the Ark ship away, and hopefully do some sad dad in space uh, reconciliation along with your uh, sister. Um, so I've played the opening kind of, I guess, around about the third of the game. Um, and I'm really impressed by it. When it first started, I did think it was, it looked a little bit rote in terms of how it was telling the story, but actually, even though it shares like quite a lot with a movie like Interstellar, um, and some of the other sad dad in space type, uh, movies, it is a story told with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of humanity um, and a sense of warm, good humour, which I find really engaging. Um, No one in this game feels like, you know, a particularly original character, but what they do feel is the the relationships between them feel very real, is what I'd say. So you're this kind of, um, you know, young girl who was very close to her dad, and you had this older sister who, like I say, is the sort of head astronaut. 
and is your kind of protector and sort of raised you really. Um, and it's nice to see the relationship between two sisters being explored, uh, especially as that relates to their dad as well and their differing feelings about who he was and why he did what he did. Hmm. Um, and also just kind of idea that their dad was this guy who, you know, saw that the world was dying and the world was, you know, not, not didn't have much longer left and was trying to work out a way to, you know, build a future for humanity, which is, you know, quite likely a, a real predicament that the world is facing at the moment. And I appreciated the game for kind of taking that on and, and thinking about it. Again, it's it's what the movie Interstellar is doing, but actually I thought here it was more intimately um, kind of staged. Um, there's a couple of really good moments early on in this game. I haven't, I, I'm going to report back again once I've actually finished it. One sequence in particular really stands out. Um, uh, and this is a mild spoiler, so skip ahead if you're... Uh, um, it's not really a plot spoiler, actually. It's just a kind of moment spoiler, which is when you're finally off, about to head off to Mars, um, you get in your kind of rocket, which is a full-blown, like, you know, Apollo um, program rocket. You get to do the thing where you, you know, you you, you go along the... You, you get a lift up the big tower and then walk across the, uh, the sort of uh, bridge to the to the, the ship itself. And then there's this brilliant, brilliant sequence where you are in the cockpit of the spaceship. You're looking up at the you know the daylight, um, and you're sort of you know you're 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 pointing upwards. You know your seats rolled back, so you're just pointing upwards at the sky inside this rocket, and you just go through launch sequence with your sister. And the other crew members, um, you know, giving orders and pressing buttons, and uh, you're given tasks to do, which are basically just pressing buttons and turning levers and knobs and stuff like that. But it's all done in like official astronaut language. And the way you're prompted as to what you do is the the switch or the knob that you need to twizzle or twist lights up on the UI just very slightly. So you still have to look for them. You have, you can move your head. Um, you know, uh, back and forth and you're looking around. And after a while, you get a sense of where things are located. So you get to have a little fantasy. It's just a fantasy I didn't realize I'd had of launching a spaceship up into space. Yeah, And you get to go through the whole process of like doing safety checks, you know, um, unlocking certain things, starting engines, starting thrusters. And then you, you know, you lift off, you, um, you know, detach from the fuel tank and all that sort of stuff you get to do all that and you even get to have the moment where you like arrive in space uh you know where the sky turns black and you're out there amongst the stars and it's done like with a real sense of narrative efficiency um and also but it's a character building moment as well because you can hear in your sister's voice how she trusts you and how you kind of competently respond to her one thing it doesn't do is like what a lot of games do is like press that button. And if you don't do it immediately, they go, no, press the button. The one on the, you know, they don't <laughs> want you to sort of, but I, I was interested to see what would happen if mm. you don't do the thing that you're asked to do and nothing happens. The game just trusts you to roll through these things and feel competent and feel like the competent scientist and astronaut you're supposed to be anyway. Um, and yeah, and, and like, gives you that sense of trust with your, your you know, the sister and, and the other astronauts on the mission that actually builds a sense of camaraderie through a procedural, you know, um, 
through the procedure of of launching a spaceship, which is its own fantasy. So yeah, it's just really clever stuff. Um, and then the, the you know the gameplay is is heavily narrative based, as I say. And then there are puzzles, which mostly involve um, pointing like kind of these uh, electronic devices at each other to kind of power them up and, and unlock them. And those are kind of fine so far, at least. You know, they take a, a little bit of lateral thinking, um, but not too much. You know, I never felt stuck, or at least I haven't so far. There's also a little bit of like hard space shipbreaker or ship space hardbreaker stuff to be done where you're sort of lasering through, um, you know, metal objects and also a weird little robot companion that you can pilot around like a little drone. So it's a kind of hodgepodge of stuff going on. Um, but so far, at least, it feels like the narrative really is the primary focus. And that's why I compare it to a, a walking simulator. Mm. Um, and it also is like really good at like delivering like big spacey sites, you know. And it has a, a lovely, you know, um, earthy um, kind of numinous sort of ambient soundtrack going along with everything that reminds me a lot of like interstellar again that's obviously a touch touchstone for these people making it, i think um but yeah just like kind of bringing a sense of awe into space without like drawing attention to it too much like the awe you would feel as an astronaut doing their job rather than like I'm some randomer who's been plucked, you know, the, the uh, forespoken kind of vibe of things <laughs> of like, let's take someone completely ordinary and make it extraordinary, you know, yeah. like allowing you to like inhabit the role of someone rather than just sort of, you know, plunging you into a, into a different world. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to like playing through the back half of it. And like, you know, even though there's pretty much every element in there is something I've seen before, um, it certainly feels like it's building towards something interesting rather than something I've seen before. There's a lot to be said for those sequences where you're doing kind of mundane jobs worthy things in a cool environment. Like, uh, this is one of the things that really appealed to me about a lot of Sims, like the old MechWarrior games, for example. Obviously, very, very different games about combat and uh, wrangling these huge machines that you're inside of. But that's, and even with flight simulators, that sense of like, turning on the little bits, ramping up the throttle, pulling back at the right time, just sort of being a pilot and uh, just doing those mundane things. And actually to turn that into a storytelling moment as well. Sounds like a really, that sounds super appealing. Also, I'm such a sucker for that moment where you go into space, <laughs> where yep. the atmosphere falls away and suddenly you're just alone and everything's quiet. <laughs> that's just, uh, it's going to work on me every time. <laughs> it's just a great thing to do with the games, a lot of it films as well, but especially games when you're in the cockpit. Um, and some of the most effective VR experiences I've had have, have been co those cockpit games where you're suddenly being vaulted into space, like the old EVE Online combat game. Um, but yeah, it sounds, it sounds really cool. I'm glad that, uh, you know, even though it's obviously the Sad Dad in Space is or is just uh, an ongoing genre that will always be made, it's, uh, it's good to hear that there's, you know, room within that to create sensitive characters and relationships. I think it's just, it sounds like it's just really well written. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's it, it is. It's like I don't know. It just there's there's just a thoughtfulness behind it that I I I really like. It's I'm slightly surprised by how much I like it to be honest. Because hmm. you know, it's not like the writing is off the chain good. It's just that I don't know. I can I can see them building towards something. I can't. One thing is I can't stop referring to the guy who who 
voices the dad. It's a really good voice performance, but he does sound like Paul Bettany. He sounds a lot like Paul <laughs> Bettany. It's that similar kind of um, sort of um, posh sort of sort of whisper going on. Mm-hmm. And I keep referring to in my head as Paul Motney, which isn't <laughs> funny or doesn't even make sense. But for some reason, it's like, oh, I can't wait to see my dad, Paul Motney, uh, <laughs> and reunite with him finally. Well, hopefully that happens. Yeah, do, uh, report back and, and let us know right, absolutely how, well. how it pans out. That's good to I'll put that in my back pocket, actually, because sometimes I'm really in the mood for that kind of slightly, you know, chill narrative. Yeah, it's experience. definitely that. It's got, it's got a nice, it's got a leisurely pace to it, you know. Like, I've only just got to Mars and I've played it for, you know, five or six hours. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's nice to see something like that taking its time. I mean... Uh, you you do run the risk of someone just, uh, you know, oh, fuck this, <laughs> come on. No, hmm. I'm supposed to bring you, you know, de- deliver you Mars, and I haven't got there <laughs> for six hours, you know. It's going to take a while. Um, so, yeah, I can totally <laughs> see someone having having that response. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's just so far, at least. I know, it's just like a player who's downloaded this on Steam is like, give me Mars. It's, yeah. in, it's in the title. <laughs> Just give me Mars. Hurry up with the well, fucking Mars. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, I think that's true for all those, you know, slightly slow burn narrative games. But I think um, the audience self selects into that these days. I think because it's such a, an established type of game and type of experience, people who pick this up will presumably not be expecting it to be this kind of. You're not going to be shooting bugs off the walls in at like Dead Space, which I've also been playing. Um, it's going to be something. It does, a bit, a bit does have a character in it at one point say, "But Dad." <laughs> She's too young to live on the moon, which, which is like you know, it's not quite that wizard came from the moon, but it's, yeah, it's I, up I see, there. You know, you got to you got to be have your wits about you when you use the moon as a destination. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter what the uh, how good the world building is, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, the moon is just an inherently funny sequence of sounds. <laughs> it is very funny to refer to the moon casually as anything other than like the deeply, you know, ancient and mysterious, uh, you know, object that orbits us. It's just, yeah, you, you can, the moon is very hard to take seriously if someone says that, don't they? Mm. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, I, I've run out of games. There's a few games I've got that I'll sort of talk about in future pods, I think. The Dead Space remake I'm really enjoying, but I really yes. want to uh, unpack precisely why it's such a good remake Um the way it's Can you all... give us a preview of how good the stomp is in the? Uh, oh, Dead it's space. just splendid. It's a, uh, <laughs> it was it was a brilliant, brilliant idea in the first game, um, and the fact that it rewards you with loot <laughs> when you do it, it makes <laughs> no sense. Um, but it's a, it's a it, it, the, the brilliant thing it, it serves as just a stress reliever because you've gone through this uh, horrible combat sequence where these horrible clawed things, the enemy design is excellent in this, they're genuinely scary. Um, and the screeching, squiggly, uh, and anxiety-inducing soundtrack when they're attacking you, it, it all gets very heated and stressful. It's part of what makes it so good. It's kind of chan- channeling um, some of the best stuff that Resident Evil 4 does with its slow-turning mechanics and these weapons that don't just instantly finish things off um, where you have to Play a, play a bit of attention to where you're shooting them but they're also at your throat and it's like, ah there's so much tension building up um, and then you take one down and you press R2 stomp ammo health pack <laughs> and the animation the sound and the way and it's just like it just it's like a, a just a, it's like turning a valve to let the steam out a little bit it's just how, how, how it feels in the moment it's such an effective <laughs> mechanic um, 
like it's really funny like it's it's like lots of stuff in dead space like a lot of it's really 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 silly silly on its face like people writing stuff on the walls in their with their blood um it, it's been like famously kind of lambasted and it is really silly but what's the like the alternative would be to someone to have a, a like an audio or video call with the character that says isaac you need to you need to cut the limbs off. You need to cut the limbs yes. off. Like, how is that actually going to play out in any other way? Actually, it's kind of better that it's just written on the wall. So you could just be like, okay, noted. I'll, I'll, I'll proceed with that. Yes, um, it's, it's, it's nature's audio log, isn't it? Blood, <laughs> yeah. your own blood. <laughs> yeah, the classic. And um, <laughs> I was playing uh, the Callisto Protocol, which is uh, it's just Dead Space. Like, it just is. Uh, without the fun kind of clipping uh, limbs off mechanics. But in terms of the pacing, everything's trying to do um, down to the uh you know the character himself and the idea of that you're in a, a big facility that's collapsing according to uh, an outbreak of zombies um that's all the same i think that's got a stop mechanic as well uh but they rigidly rigidly uh, deliberately stick to the blood on the wall messages um again if you think about it for a second like actually <laughs> but the, the, so like the, these messages are like five meters wide <laughs> yeah it's like You've used all of your blood here. Like all the blood that you, you need is just on this wall now in this message. But you know, uh, anyway, it's easy to make fun of, but it's very, very effective and it's very, very good. Um, and I feel like the Dead Space re- remake has been like very well thought out. They've they've added some stuff. Like uh, I want to sort of come back uh, on it in future because I want to really check what was in, in the original and what they've actually changed. Um, which is a credit to how seamless it feels as a remake. That none of it feels egregious. But I think there are much more sort of double back, back mechanics. And to me, it feels like it's a bit more generous with like money and ammo, just slightly. But that might just be me misremembering the first one. Um, but that's really good. So I, I could talk about that in the future and talk about Callisto Protocol as well, which is kind of fun. Had a, a bit of a disastrous launch on PC for loads of technical issues. Um, no, it's funny because me and Marsh did an episode sort of, it would have been uh, just after E3 uh, last year. Hmm. And that was when all of the, like, like a third of the games were Dead Space likes that were <laughs> yeah. coming out. Um, Everyone just realised, like a... oh wait, this was good, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of weird why that series went off the rails because like Dead Space Two was good, Dead Space Three was like really strange cop game. It wanted to be a cop game, and it's like completely the felt like completely the wrong way for that to go. Um, so, and I'm also like slightly puzzled as to why they remade this instead of commissioning a sequel. There might be a sequel in the works, and they wanted to sort bring this out especially because remakes yes, what, are popular yeah what i've heard some people want to do uh, some people think is going to happen is they're going to do uh this dead space game because it's made by a different teams so they'll mm. do dead space then they'll do dead space 2 and yeah. then they'll do a different dead, dead space, space 3, 3 yeah because everyone says <laughs> everyone universally hates dead space 3 and so what they'll do is they'll yeah make a take the story in a different direction yeah i mean the, the series deserves that chance i think is it, it it's got legs, except for the ones that Isaac has. Yeah, and like we've off. done Final Fantasy VII remake doing something mm. similar um, in how it kind of tells the same story, but um, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to say anymore. But like, uh, don't want to spoil that game. But like, that game does things, you know, which it changes particularly. It changes things. Yeah, 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 but in a sensible way. I remember I was actually back when I was, um, I think, a piece of game I was chance some developers. Uh, a thing and uh one of them asked me what do you think of the final fantasy 7 remake as an idea and i, was, I said it, like it's a disastrous idea because that game has 13 cities and to render a city in like to modern expectations would be a fool's errand um 
And I really like what they've done with the Final Fantasy remake. I think it's fantastic. But the fact that that is just that long game and beautifully <laughs> produced game is like one twentieth of yeah. Final Fantasy VII <laughs> suggests that that one's going to ultimately piece out. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they get around to it. But it feels as though to to reach the final stage, they're going to have to potentially cut the yes, few shortcuts. Yeah, I think they to scale things down somewhat. <laughs> yeah, like the bit where you go is just fight a giant. Uh, snake in the desert and stuff <laughs> um yeah, my favorite, yeah we'll see my favorite thing about that game is the soundtrack i think it's the most oh it's awesome som- sumptuously produced soundtrack of a video game ever and it's not even close like the level of detail and like the size of the orchestrations mm. and everything like that you can listen to the whole thing on spotify it's enormous it's like loads and loads yeah, done so much music and just the yeah just the 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 absolute sound of it all is amazing. <laughs> I listen to it all the time. It's brilliant because uh, the, all of the like the, all of the kind of orchestration is directly related to the MIDI original MIDI sounds and those incredible melodies. Um, yeah, and the way that like the fact that they were able to retain so much and they've done a perfect job of scaling it up to this grand orchestral soundtrack. They, they have done a splendid job, but it's a testament to the original, the quality of the original. Uh, iconic music that was produced for that game. Um, I love Final Fantasy VII. It's I wonder. I don't think it's it'll be pretty dated now. Uh, the original game for um for new players, I think. But like especially the character models, they're big stupid heads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think as a remake, it wasn't. It was it was a bit more than purely a nostalgic exercise because they also revamped the combat from scratch as well, made it much more close, uh, much closer to uh, the game they made about Zack, uh, who is. A character in Final Fantasy Crisis VII. Core. Crisis Core, that's the one, which was also remastered recently. Um, uh, and it feels the combat feels a lot like that. Um, I played that Crisis Core game recently. That's that's got really, really nicely chunked up combat. Like those combat encounters are like thirty seconds long and always satisfying. Um, so the fact that some of them might be brand more forced on you feels less onerous. Um, but yeah, I, I've got yeah, I've got all sorts about these. The glorious thing about Final Fantasy Seven, right, is that. And I think it's slightly undersold now. And it's something that the remake will never be able to do. In fact, they're like completely turned, like explicitly turning in the opposite direction. Is it like Final Fantasy VII does this thing where it tells this like story for like 25 hours <laughs> and then it twists massively round and tells you a complete, and like just <laughs> like the, the story transforms into something completely different. And then it does it again. Like, <laughs> It just it doesn't follow narrative rules at no, all because no, the like shifts in plot are enormous and no one would even dare to do anything like that these days because it's just too mad. And like the fact that like, you know, as you as you go on in that game, the nature of your character, like the lead character you've been playing from the start comes into question. Um and the mission you're on comes into question and like everything goes very Akira uh, <laughs> yeah, after just... a certain point. And I just like I really respect that that they were making like, you know, what must have been one of the biggest, like the undertaking of that game must mm. have been one of the biggest ever being completely unprecedented at that time. And they didn't just go for like, you know, the big popcorn hits. They made a really, really weird game with <laughs> a did, really yeah. like weird Lovecraftian story kind mm. of coming up from there with like a billion characters all doing, you know, it's just kind of extraordinary, really. Um and like for me, like I've never really played a, a Final Fantasy game since then. Um, Final Fantasy VIII, you know, I, I, I did, but like that didn't have 
that same level of just insanity <laughs> at its heart. And it's so funny that everyone remembers Final Fantasy VII as this really sweet, you know, you know, the first video game that made anyone cry. Because yeah, it's it's got all that in there, but it also has like six or seven video games worth of <laughs> other stuff going on at the same time. Yeah, it's it's kind of oh, you've got this genetic body horror, uh, cosmic threats, mad scientists, vampires. Ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's it's, it's kind of everything <laughs> happens in that game at some point. They must Dragons. have just thought yeah. they must have just thought that thing of like we are, we are just going to make the f- absolute fuck out of this <laughs> game. <you know? laughs> yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Um, it does feel as though it's one of the few Final Fantasies apart from actually nine gets super apocalyptic actually um, uh, at points, but they're all obviously apocalypse stories. That's the name, uh, but. Seven is one of the ones where I felt like actually existence is actually slowly ending at <laughs> points in this game. But I did get that sense of uh, massive cosmic horror uh, from it at points. Uh, well, and again, like good luck doing that over 20 games as remakes. But yeah, I, I'm really glad they're trying because I really enjoyed the first uh, Midgar based segment of it. The thing that's on the, like, just, oh, we'll stop talking soon, but the thing that's on the cover of Final Fantasy, right? The, like, <laughs> the, the meteor. Yeah. Meteor thing. You don't learn what that is until, mm. like, hour 60 of the <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah, it's just like, and now like, this. Oh, that's what the cover was. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering when that was going to arrive. Uh, Ator also has some wild, wildly stupid twists around it. Uh, amnesia and the fact that yes it does it has like timey-wimey stuff it has timey-wimey stuff really Um, doesn't stand up to much scrutiny at all no it doesn't Uh, and uh yeah it's kind of characters that you're playing as in parallel from different times and spaces which again pretty brave um and they sort of they did do that thing where they would let your like um sprite run across pre-rendered cgi scenes yeah they did like that which at the time, was I'm sure you would agree, absolutely mind-blowing. I was like, oh my God, this is the cinematic <laughs> experience I've always wanted games to become. Yeah, and, uh, there's it, that sequence where the two gardens like crash into each other. Yeah, and to like, be fair, like they're really well well done for the time. That, that, that oh, was it's just majestic. Like, the stuff. production value like through the roof, and you really felt like you were playing through a like, kind of epic um, you know, movie. It was, mm. it was fabulous. And they're also mostly short because they couldn't afford to make them terribly, <laughs> terribly long. And it's kind of one of the things that all the kind of forced action sequences like that. Um, so like The Last of Us, for example, the, first, the TV series, the first sort of opening scenes of it are pretty much taken directly, lifted directly from The Last of Us game. Um, and uh, even though I think they're cool dramatic sequences, you're forced to sit through them for five plus minutes. Uh, and actually kind of it's, it's mostly short, those garden crash fight sequences. Like you run through them for... 90 seconds and be like oh my god that was crazy and then you're in the boss fight <laughs> you're back and then in the you game. can never pu- you can never play it again no, yes that's again. right because like, it's like seven hours into the game <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah you've got that moment and uh unlike games these days where they actually have galleries where you can often replay those cinematics nah you can't yes. you, you can go to youtube now i'm sure that it will be everywhere it's weird to remember how much of a reward it was to yeah, get a was. cgi sequence yeah. like there's only, a, there's only a few minutes worth of them in Final Fantasy VII, but when one of them popped up, you were just like walking on air. Like, oh, yeah, it's absolutely wild. Yeah, and a few, a couple of Sef- classic Sephiroth scenes. Um, did not spoil you one, which is an iconic image: is uh, him surrounded by flames, uh, staring at the camera, and then turning around and slowly walking away. And uh, that was like that must be like 15 seconds long. Um, yeah, but like it's embedded in my memory, and also memories of like millions of 
players uh and has been like repeated and in, in i think in moments in final fantasy films and it uh, is again going to be repeated in the remakes and it's something the, the key art that gets used so so often for final fantasy 7 is that that thing of sephiroth staring at you through the flames it's um, really badass it's awesome yeah it's just it's such a great moment and uh, it took yeah 10 to 15 seconds max <laughs> that, that i remember the other one i remember is the you get um in resident evil 2 mm. the original one you get the story of how the sort of virus sort of first got into the sort of sewer systems and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. um, and it's a, you know, it's a kind of, it's a CGI sequence of a SWAT team trying to take down a monster and it comes like quite late in the game. And I remember that was like such a huge reward at the time, mm. like seeing this really badass action sequence. I mean, I've seen watched it relatively recently and it's kind of laughable now, <laughs> yeah. but at the time it felt unbelievably intense and extreme. Um, and it was it really was a reward to kind of see this kind of what felt like a really high quality like you know origin story for how you know Racking City ended up this way mm. um, yeah and yeah you'd uh, in the old consoles you'd hear that this like the CD-ROM suddenly were up faster in the drive oh, yeah, that's true it would do <laughs> all the that, fans it? turned on <laughs> like, you could do a thing with Final Fantasy 7 couldn't you where you'd swap the discs over Mm. when you weren't supposed to, so it played the wrong CGI movie. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know you could do that. Points, yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> Someone will laugh. Someone in the Discord will, will let me know if that's an actual thing. That's, um, I hope pretty, that's true. Pretty sure it's true. <laughs> that's absolutely marvellous. That's it. Uh, and on that wonderful nostalgic note, and yeah, um, if anyone wants to email quaintincredible at gmail.com with uh, their nostalgic reflections and thoughts of remakes or anything else we've talked about, then most welcome you do read them. Um, so yeah, Jamie, is there anything else you wanted? To no, mention? I'm all good. I'm Fantastic. Fully expressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, until next time, um, you can follow us online. I've, you can tell I don't do these outros very often. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Mr. Tom Senior and Jamie. Where where can we find you? I'm on I'm on Twitter at matronboy.com. Fantastic. Why did I say dot com? There's no dot com there. It's just <laughs> at matronboy. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.